0: Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. I think I'm going to sit down here. How do y'all feel about that? You okay? Okay, great. Hey, man, I'm glad to be back with y'all. COVID stinks. Let me just tell you, not fun. Um, it did allow me to grow a beautiful slash ugly mustache. Thank you. Thank you. Marvel at my mustache, please. If you can grow a mustache, I encourage you, join with me. Nothing says happy birthday, Jesus, like a nasty December stash. Join with me in it, okay? I'm setting a new thing up. Hey, um, last week Alex spoke for me. Thank you, Alex. You did a great job talking about this new series we're doing called Gift Exchange. Um, we understand the concept of, of an exchange. Um, some of you better than others. Some of you are very picky people. And so, when you get a present, um, you don't like it, you take it back. Like, it's very hard to shop for you. I'm not that way. Um, But every year I have to make an exchange. I don't know how to get through to my mom this concept. Like, when I buy a shirt, it either has to be an XL or a double XL, it's just depending on the cut of the shirt because I'm not only kind of broad, but I'm long, and so depending on the cut of the shirt, it's either XL or XXL. It, without fail, I, you know, I tell my mom every year, don't buy me clothes, it's too difficult, only really Natalie can figure it out, like don't buy me stuff, just buy me a gift card and I'll buy the clothes. And every year, without fail, I get a shirt from my mom and it is a large. So it's not even an XL or a double XL. Like, I haven't been, I haven't worn a large since I was 16 years old. So I'm like where are you thinking like I can wear the shirt. So of course, I have to find out where the shirt's purchased from. I have to drive to that store. Hopefully she bought it from a store in her town that we have in our town. I have to drive down to that store, tell them, hey, it doesn't fit me, no problem. They give me a new shirt or they give me credit and I go get a different shirt, right? Like we all understand this concept of exchanges and typically with an exchange, it is because of something like that. It doesn't fit, it's ill-fitting, it doesn't work the way we want it to work, it's not the model, it's not the whatever that we want it's just not the right thing for us the idea behind the series gift exchange is that God wants to exchange some things that we've been holding on to that don't fit us very well and and in Christmas he shows us I want to give you something for what you're holding on to because a lot of us this should be on the screen a lot of us are holding on to things that don't work for us so last week, Alex talked about, hey, when Christ came, what this is is this miraculous exchange of hope for, for despair. I wanna give you my hope for despair. And it's a great message for 2020 because this has just been a year where, I mean, even if things start going well for you, eventually something goes wrong. This is just a you know, crappy, you're not supposed to say that in church, I don't think, but crappy year for everybody. It doesn't matter, you know, your exact circumstances and if they're as bad as the person that you know. I mean, it's just been bad across the board. And so we start getting heavy and we start getting dark and it starts becoming depressing and we get kind of give in to despair. And in the midst of that, what we realize is that despair doesn't really fit us very well. But the beautiful thing about Christmas is that Christ came to say, I will give you hope, eternal hope, hope for the here and now, hope that I'm still with you, I'm walking with you, I'm not leaving or forsaking you, so I want to give you something that fits a little bit better. Today we're in week two, which is talking about, I want to give you peace for your turmoil. Now I thought about like, what's the second part of that phrase, like peace for what? Because it's actually kind of hard to find a word that's the opposite of peace, So I thought of the word turmoil, and it kind of is just like a a broad term, but inside of turmoil, like, let's just name some things that might be more applicable to you. I want to give you peace in place of your stress. That would be turmoil. I want to give you peace in place of your anxiety. That would be turmoil. I want to give you peace in place of your worry. I want to give you peace in place of your pain. I want to give you peace in in place of your problems. I want to give you peace in the midst of the storm. I want to give you peace. Let me exchange. See, the, the truth of the matter is, is that God was never distant from mankind, both Old and New Testament. He understood his creation. And he understood that we're carrying around stress, anxiety, worry, problems, pain. We're carrying around these things that are disrupting our peace. And so he says, let me give you something that works a little bit better for that. Let me give you peace. And when Jesus came, this was this huge exchange moment where God says to us, I want to give you peace. I want to give you peace. How do I know that's true? Well, the story goes, right? That in Luke chapter 2, think about this for a second, just real quick. Think about the fact that the night Jesus was born, other than these guys that we're about to talk about, literally no one else in all of the world knew that anything was happening. Imagine being alive that night and going to bed and then waking up the next morning and not knowing that history had just changed in that night. That's crazy to think about. It wasn't heralded when he showed up on the scene, except for a few people. There were some shepherds who were out in the fields caring for flocks. Jesus was not born in December, by the way, because you don't care for sheep out in the pasture at that time of year in that area of the world, so we don't know exactly when Jesus was born, but it wasn't December, but all that's another story for another time. All right, so the shepherds are out in the fields, and they're just having a normal night, and an angel appears, just one. And the angel says to them, guys, you need to go. Somebody should show up to the Savior's birth. He could go to kings. He could have sent me to a king to to tell him, go look at Jesus. Instead, he sent me to the lowest of the low, the shepherd. You guys need to go to the town of Bethlehem. There's a baby. He's the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He's laying in a stable, and he is wrapped in rags. That's how we'd say it today. Now, I I think this was such a strange experience for them, and I think they're going, are we having, are you seeing this? Are you seeing an angel? Are are y'all seeing, like, is this a mass hallucination? Because not just because of, of the fact that an angel was there that night, but then of the message, the specific message, go to a stable, find a baby, wrapped in rags, that is the savior of the earth. Like, it's so weird that I think they were struggling to understand, and so what happens is, verse 13 of Luke chapter two, it'll be on the screen. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel. So there was one angel talking to them. Go find this Jesus. And they're like, What is going on? And then boom. I think they had this whole time been surrounded by angels. They just couldn't see them. Boom, here they are. A huge heavenly host appears, and they say two things. They said, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here, here's the announcement the announcement of Jesus' birth. The angels show up, they say two things. When the heavenly hosts show up, they say two things. Number one, glory to God. This is his plan. Glory to God. Number two, and on earth, peace. It was a declaration of peace. Jesus' arrival was a declaration of peace. This is the exchange. Listen, I know my creation. I know what my creation needs. The arrival is here. Here is peace. It is peace on earth. Here, here's the peace that you need. The peace that you've been looking for because you've been carrying stress, anxiety, worry, despair, all these different things. Here's the peace you need. It's in a manger. Go find him. Peace on earth. But if that is the announcement of Jesus' birth. Hey, now now the world has peace. If that's the announcement, then I think this is a really fair question. By the way, if, if you think this is good for you at all tonight, you should go across the street on Sunday mornings because Bob's doing a four-week series on peace. In fact, I didn't know that and he started talking this past Sunday and I'm like, oh, you're saying a lot of what I was going to say so I had to rewrite some things, okay? But that's cool. So if you want to hear more about peace then on Sunday mornings, we hope to see you over there. But here's a fair question. If Christ's arrival was supposed to usher in peace on earth, I think this is a fair question. Then where is the peace? Where is it? I started trying to think about what robs us of peace. Because the the easiest way to figure out what the problem is is to define the problem, right? So what robs us of peace? Peace. I thought of four major categories. Now, you could come up with a bunch of subcategories to this, and that'd be relational problems steal our peace. Since the dawn of time, that's been the case. Relational problems steal our peace. Okay? Second would be this. War. Political problems. War between nations, and then political problems inside of individual nations. That kills and robs us of our peace. Third is this. Plagues and diseases. (laughs) Hello, 2020. Like, right? Plagues and diseases. Rob us of our peace. And the fourth is this. Economic insecurity. Now, you could think of any number of scenarios, but I think they would fall underneath these four headings. One of these... Areas. This would be the thing that steals your peace. So here's the question. If Christ came to bring peace, make a great exchange, peace for our problems, peace for our pain, stress, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, turmoil. If he came to solve the issue, then has he solved the issue? let's go here, just leave this list up for a second, if you will. Let's let's just go to the life of Christ. And then from the life of Christ, let's back up and go 2,000 years of the future to our lives. Did Christ solve these issues in his own life? Like he walked the earth for 33 years, his presence was peace. Did these go away for the 33 years that he walked the earth? Well, let's just Think about him. relational problems. He was abandoned and betrayed by everyone that loved him. His mother thought he was crazy. She sent his brothers and sisters to essentially send him to an insane asylum. Peter left him high and dry. His whole life was filled with relationship problems, okay. Wars and political problems. Well, good gosh, there's a lot of them. I mean, just think about this. Christ was born within the first two years of him being born. King Herod hears that a savior's been born who's gonna be king of the earth. He doesn't understand that. He thinks that he's coming for his throne. King Herod is an insecure little man, and so he decides, here, I'll solve this problem. I'll just send some guards over to Bethlehem and I'll slaughter all male babies aged two and under. Can you imagine that? And so they go and they slaughter the babies around Bethlehem, age two and under. If Mary and Joseph hadn't been warned of this, they would have been in the middle of that, but they were able to escape. Talk about problems. That's a huge problem. There wasn't peace in that moment. Jesus was born under Roman rule. He lived his entire life as a Jewish man under Roman rule. Listen, I don't know what you, you know, the the shows you've seen about Rome or movies you've seen where Rome's a character, but I'll tell you this, like, Roman rule was not kind and gentle. It was mean and oppressive. So he lived his whole life with political problems and pressure and stress. There was problems between Pharisees and Sadducees. There was political intrigue surrounding Jesus of like, which group are you gonna join? Like his whole life was filled with political problems. It was political problems that put him on the cross. If you really wanna get into it. So okay, what about economic insecurity? Well, Jesus died poor. So did every other disciple that followed him, penniless. The vast majority of his followers were incredibly impoverished, impoverished the way we couldn't even possibly understand. So, in his own 33 years, when he is announced, it said peace on earth, but the major things that bring us peace were not solved in his 33 years. I think that's fair. So, let's back to 2000, 2000 years and 2020, and here we are. Are those solved? relational problems. I talk to y'all, listen, 80% of the, if you come to me for counseling or can I, you know, can, can I unload some things on you? And I'm always happy to have that opportunity. Like this is like a, a percentage of my job, but this is not my job. My job is in my office and meeting with you at coffee shops and stuff like that. So if you want to do that, I want to do that. And so 80% though, 80% usually of y'all's problems that you lay on me are something to do with a relationship issue. Boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad, brother, sister, friends. Okay, so those aren't solved. You would think like, oh, I follow Christ, like my relationship issues are solved. No, oh. no, they don't. Wars and political problems. Nope. Those are still around. Today's December 8th. Does anybody know yesterday, December 7th, why that was a... Pearl there you go, Pearl Harbor Day. And yeah, we can't even imagine that. We can't even imagine that because we haven't had that in, in, in generations where a nation attacked us. Now in 2001, September 11th, we had an ideology attack us. So now we live in a whole new reality that it's not just a, a nation that attacks us, but just a belief system can attack us. So, okay, wars, wars just keep breaking out. In fact, there's a a foundation based in London called the International, I think it's called the International Law Foundation, I can't remember, but they did a study of 4,000 years of human history. 4,000 years of human history to figure out how much of it was peaceful. In 4,000 years of human history, 268 years have been without a war. Do you know what percentage of 4,000 is 268? seven percent seven percent of human history has been peaceful without a war that means 93 percent we've been at war political problems yeah it's 2020 an election year We, we know that we got political problems we're still experiencing that plagues and diseases do i even need to talk about it No, not really. We all know, right? And by the way, if you think like we're we're approaching the end, like you're you're living in a fool's dream. We're not approaching the end of this thing. Like dosing over 300 million people with two doses, this is going to take a long time. Like just buckle up. We got a ways to go with this thing. So those are still around. What about economic insecurity? Well, of course. When, you know, people are shutting down for weeks on end, of course the economy is going to fall apart. Like, you get what I'm saying. I'm not trying to depress you, but what I'm trying to ask the question, I'm trying to prove the point, is that when Christ came, even in his own time on earth, he didn't solve all the issues. Even if you say, well, Tim, you know, he healed, so plagues and diseases. Yeah, he healed people, but... Everyone was still sick, right? Like, there was still a lot of sickness. And by the way, like, if he walked into this room and we were all sick, he might heal one of us, but he didn't heal all of us. You know that, right? Like, he didn't heal, like, every single sick person that was in every single town. Plagues and diseases were still around. So if he didn't solve the issues then and the issues are still here now, where's the peace that was promised? Because you might be, I think that's an important question because you might be willing to go, hold on Tim, this whole exchange thing that I can grab hold of peace and let go of this other stuff that's in, like it just doesn't work because it didn't work then, doesn't work now, like these are the things that tear us up. He hasn't solved them yet. I think the answer is this. I think to answer your question, I would ask a question. If your question is, well, where's the peace, then my question is, could it be that we have misidentified what Christ came to bring? Could it be that we just totally missed the boat? And could it be that we have misunderstood what peace even is? Because isn't that just like a, a normal thing? Like when somebody says, I want to give you this, and in your mind you're thinking what they're going to give you is something else, and they give you what they intend to give you, but you totally miss it because you didn't know that's what they meant by it? Like, can't you see how that works out? Like, is it that God actually brought us peace, but we have been so trained to think about peace in a particular way that we totally missed what Christ did, and we've missed the boat on peace, and peace is totally obtainable right now to you. The problem is is that you're looking for it in the wrong places, So that begs the question then, if those are some good questions, I think they are, then leads us to the next question. What is peace? What is it? Did you know like the world has a terrible time defining peace? The world defines peace based on what it isn't. That's the most terrible way to define anything, by the way. If you ask, hey, what is this? And and, you know I have something in my hand and I go to Jason, I go, Jason, what is this? And Jason goes, well, I'll tell you what it isn't. Well, okay, Jason, you're obnoxious. Like, just tell me, how about you just tell me what it is? I didn't ask what it isn't. I asked what it is. Like, the worst way to define something is by pointing out what it is not. That's the weakest definition of something. When I want to go after what it is. When you ask the world, hey, world, what is peace? They can only tell you what it isn't. Here's a definition. The normal, non-warring condition of a nation. Hey, hey, world, what's peace? Well, we'll tell you what it isn't. It's not war. <laughs> yeah, but what is peace? The second definition gets a little bit closer to it. Here's what it says. A state of harmony among people or groups. And you go, well, okay, so that's a good definition, Tim, because you know, what is peace? And they just said it's a state of harmony. Right, but let me, I, mean, I don't want to split hairs, but isn't harmony just the absence of problems again they're saying it's it's the absence of turmoil it's the absence of problems and that really is that's the tim starry definition of the world's definition right let me paraphrase the world's definition hey what is peace world's definition here it is peace is the absence of problems that's what they would say to you that's what you should pursue hear me on that the world would say peace is the absence of problems so go pursue that Let me tell you, that is a terrible definition, and that will never work. If you go and try to live life and achieve the absence of problems, it will never work. You'll never experience peace. Peace will always be elusive to you because you're chasing after an existence that does not actually exist. I can prove it with two things. The first is weaker than the second. First, How do I know that the absence of problems is not an actual state of being? Weaker argument. My own experience tells me that's not an actual state of being. I've lived 35 years. I have never had a problem-free day. And even if I have had a problem-free day, I can guarantee you I've never had a problem-free week, let alone month or year and I don't care how old you are, 23, 22, 18, whatever you are, you haven't had. Your own experience tells you you haven't had a problem-free month, week, day. You haven't had one of those. That's what you're gonna chase after? Something you've never experienced before? Something that you've never seen anyone else experience before, a problem-free? I used to think that my biggest problem in life was a drinking problem. Now, I will tell you, my drinking problem got solved. But in its place, what I have noticed is now that that problem is out of my way, I now see clearly that I have a lot of other problems that still need to be fixed. I used to think for a while that my biggest problem was that I was underemployed and then I got employed at a higher level, and then I eventually got employed at a higher level, and I will tell you this, my underemployment problem got solved, but I will tell you, there's the song, More Money, More Problems, right? A higher employment, just the trade-off is some issues get solved, but new problems get created. I've yet to experience problem-free. But that's the world's definition of peace, absence of problems. That's the first proof that I know that's not true. My own experience, your experience, the experience of the world. The second reason I know that that definition can't be true, the absence of problems, that's what peace is, it can't be true, is because Jesus said it. This is stronger than my own experience, by the way. Jesus spoke truth. My own experience can sometimes lead me astray, but I can look at the words of Jesus. It tells me what's true. Here's what Jesus said in John 16, 33. Sidney read it from a different translation. Here's what it says. I have told you these things so that in me you may have... Notice this. Jesus is telling his disciples at the very end, I've told you, I've walked with you, I've taught you, I did all this so that you may have peace. In other words, he's signaling, I've been trying to make an exchange with you. You haven't had peace. I want to give you peace. It fits better. You need it. Let me let you have. Notice the word, have peace. I want you to have it. Take it. I want you to have it. But then notice his next words I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I take heart, I've overcome the world. Now look at this. This is so good, y'all. In this verse, Jesus says you can have peace because you will have trouble. Do you see what he's saying? Trouble and peace can exist in the same person at the exact same time. You will have trouble. You can have peace at the exact same time. Jesus doesn't say peace is the absence of problems. He says sometimes peace and problems live right next to one another. That's not the only verse he says. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Like, why would you be surprised by this? You're gonna hear about wars and rumors of wars. One of the big things is political problems and wars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're gonna hear about that stuff. And then he says, such things must happen. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, your end is secure. Hey, don't worry about what's happening right now. Listen, this is what Jesus would just fully admit to you tonight. He would say, I'm just going to tell you all the truth. Y'all screwed this whole thing up. You know that, right? Y'all sinned. Y'all have created a nightmarish hellscape of an existence. So as you navigate through that, you're going to hear a bad stuff happening. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. The end is still to come. Your end is secure. Don't worry about it. Problems. Peace. Living side by side with one another. If that wasn't enough, his followers said all this. First, Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, like, guys, yeah. Fiery ordeals. Problems. Don't be, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised at this? You know why you're surprised when bad things happen to you and you know why the world's surprised when bad things happen to them? You know why they're surprised at this? Because they were pursuing peace and in their minds, peace is the absence of problems and they keep having problems. I did everything right and I have problems. I did everything I was supposed to do, I had problems. I obeyed all the rules and I have problems. It's because you're chasing a definition that can't ever exist. Because Jesus said it can't exist, and your own experience proves it. But you're not totally to blame, and neither am I, because I still chase after the mirage. The mirage of, I just want a life free of problems. I still chase after that like it exists. You know why you and I still chase after it? Number one, because we have our ear bent a little towards the world. But number two, there's a whole group of preachers that will tell you that. And you might have grown up on a steady diet of this junk. There's stuff called health and wealth gospels. Another way to say that is prosperity gospels. There are preachers, and some of them are incredibly famous, and they're on bookshelves across the way uh, at Mardell. You can find their books and buy them thinking you're filling your mind with good stuff. You're filling your mind with total junk. Because what these pastors, men and women, will tell you is this. If you have enough, and that's a key word, if you have enough faith you will not have problems. If you have enough faith, you will not get sick, and if you have enough faith, you will not suffer economic insecurity. You just need to have enough faith, because God doesn't want his people walking around being poor and all these different things. God doesn't want his people sick, so if you have enough faith, and I've had friends buy into that junk, and here's what ends up happening. By the way, after they make that pitch, if you have enough faith, a lot of people go, well, shoot, that sounds good. I want nice cars, and I want this and that. Sign me up for that. And then they go, well, the only thing you got to do is start contributing to my ministry so I can buy a jet and go over to Africa and spew my garbage over there. So just help me buy a jet so I can go spew this garbage else place, other places. Now listen, I've had friends buy into this. And what ends up happening? They're chasing after the world's definition, a problem-free existence that's been co-opted by a rotten church. And then they sit in front of that pastor because what happens is they have relational problems, they get sick, or they have money problems. And they sit in front of that pastor and they say, pastor, what is wrong, what's going on? And that pastor will have the nerve to look at that person and say, well, you just haven't had enough faith. It's not God's fault. It's certainly not my fault. It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. And the person, my friends, people that I know will look back and go, but no, I did. I did everything you said. I believed, I I contributed, I sowed a seed like you asked me to sow a seed with a big check so you can get a jet and go off to Africa and talk this junk over there. Like I did everything you wanted me to do. I have the faith. Nope, you don't have enough faith because if you did, you wouldn't be going through this. The world and these there's no other word for it, scoundrel pastors who peddle this junk, these snake oil salesmen, they've combined to spew this skewed vision to you and to me, and it's so easy, and it tickles the ears, and we like to accept it, and so what we do is accept it, but what they're doing is they're not listening to the words of Jesus. You can have peace, you will have trouble you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Peter, don't be surprised when fiery ordeals come your way. And then James, James chapter one, verse two and three, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if, but when. The world's definition of peace, a life free of problems, that doesn't exist. So when Jesus showed up and they said peace on earth, they're not talking about peace that the world's talking about and they're not talking about peace that a scoundrel pastor is peddling. They're talking about something else. How did Jesus' arrival, here's the best question you can ask. How did Jesus' arrival bring peace on the earth? Here's how it did. How did Jesus' arrival bring peace on the earth? I want to give you an illustration of it. And then give you the definition of what God would say. This is how I brought peace on the earth. But let me give you an illustration. It's a true story. There was a guy, rich guy, um, who decided he was going to make a competition for any artist that wanted to join the competition. Any painting artist that wanted to join this competition could join the competition. And what he asked, he put a call out, and I don't know how he did it, but he put a call out and saying, hey, any of you artists who want to paint, I want you to put a painting together, and in the painting, I want you to perfectly capture peace. Go any direction you want with that, but I want you to perfectly capture peace. And whoever wins this competition, I'll give this cash prize to and so submissions start rolling in, these paintings, and of course the person who's put it together is seeing them all as they come in. And, and then the day comes that he says, I'm going to announce the winning artist, I'm going to announce you know the prize, all this different stuff. I'm going to put these paintings on and show you the sequence of how these artists, with their artistic minds, have decided to, to paint peace. Because how do you paint peace, Right. So he gets a selection. I don't think he got all the the paintings that came to him, but he gets a selection of paintings. And it's pretty clear to the audience that he's going to go from like, you know, eighth place to first or whatever it is. Like he's saving the best, the one that won for the end. And so he goes and all the paintings are covered with cloth. And the first thing is he throws open the cloth and here's a painting and it's a painting of the peace symbol. It's multicolored. And the peace symbol's in the center and across around the peace symbol are different flags making the peace symbol. And the symbolism is clear. All the nations of the world coming together for peace. And the crowd did a little polite clap, but they knew this isn't the winner. So he goes on to the next one. And he flips it up, another big, crazy big painting, and it's all the children of the world playing together in perfect harmony, no problems. They're playing a game, all the children of the world represented in in this painting. And everyone kind of goes like, but they know that's not the winner. And he goes on and and at some point it kind of changes and now he's showing landscape paintings. And so like one, he reveals and it's this very calm beach doesn't ever look like it's ever been disturbed by human hands. Water, crystal clear. Sand, never been walked untouched or messed with. Beautiful setting tranquil for sure and the crowd kind of goes yeah i guess i mean but it's not really peace but okay yeah whatever and they kind of politely clap and then he goes on to another landscape and he throws open the thing and there's rolling hills and there's sheep eating on a hill no predator in sight totally peaceful tranquil serene would be the word probably and people kind of clap but they know it's not the winner and he's got one left and this is the one everyone's like this is going to be the winner and he throws the sheet up and here's the painting that's revealed Now, in that painting, everyone is sitting here going, this is the winner? Because nothing about this painting appears peaceful. In the foreground, you have a waterfall, and I don't even know if you've been near a real waterfall before, not the fake, which is, that's fake, by the way. Did y'all know that's fake? (laughs) Just blew y'all's mind. That's fake. It looks like a Willy Wonka chocolate factory uh, you know, thing. But anyways, it's not, it's not a, a real waterfall is a dangerous thing. I've been around the world. I've traveled to multiple countries. I've been near some waterfalls, and they're dangerous. Jagged rocks, hard currents. You do not want to get caught in a waterfall. It's power that we can't control. So there's a waterfall in the foreground, and in the background across these jagged mountains is a storm is brewing, and it looks like a bad storm. And so a storm is about to roll on top of this waterfall, and everyone's sitting here going, how is this piece? This looks crazy. This looks chaotic. This looks wild. And he said, this is the winner, and the artist perfectly captured piece, and the reason you don't know that is because you're sitting far enough back, but there's a detail that you're missing. And if you zoom in on the painting, here it is that right smack dab under the waterfall is a rock. And in that rock is a cleft, is a crag, is an opening. And in that crag, in that cleft, a dove has made a nest. And with the chaos of the waterfall surrounding this dove, this dove is totally and completely safe. And as the storm rolls in, no matter how bad the storm gets, the dove is totally and completely safe because it's tucked in a safe place. In other words, the chaos can swirl around the dove. As much as the chaos is gonna swirl around the dove, the chaos can swirl around it. Would you back out, go back one slide again? The chaos can just swirl. But that dove, now that you know it's there, you can see it, that dove is totally safe. The, the world's definition of peace is simply this, a life free of problems. But God's definition, you might have to sk- skip a couple slides to get to where I'm at, but this will be on the screen. God's definition of peace is not a life free of problems. God's definition of peace is peace in the presence of God. Peace is the presence of God in the midst of problems, it's not free of problems. It's like a dove tucked away in the midst of the problems. You have the presence of God. You hear his voice. You know his presence is with you. You see his hand of provision. He may not give you all that you want, but he has always given you all that you need. And at the end of every day, you know, God walked with me through the midst of that. And in the midst of the storm, as problems are raging, you have peace. It's not the absence of problem. It's the presence of God in the midst of problems. And Paul knew this. Because look at what Paul says, and I'm about to end, but look at what Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that means made right. Justified means made right. Since we have been made right through our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know this? That your biggest problem is not external like we think wars political problems all these are thus the biggest problem in our life finals that's the biggest problem your biggest problem is never external your biggest problem is an internal it's an internal problem did you know if God solved all of the external problems of the world right now wars plague disease economic insecurity if he solved all of the external problems did you know what we would do Catch this, hear me on this. You know what we would do if he solved all of the external problems? If he brought that type of peace? You know what we would do? We well, Would create new ones? Because inwardly we're broken, we're messed up, we've fallen. We're far away from God, we're at war with God. Each of us individually before we're in Christ, we're all rebels, we're at war with God. So God justifies us through faith so that we can have peace with God. God did not come to seek and to solve all the massive economic or or, or war or political or relational. What he did is that he came to make a seismic change in your heart so that you could have peace with God and experience his presence in the midst of a storm. And so if you look at this whole passage, look at it. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse three, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Here's Paul's point, he says this, we have peace with God, we've been made right, justified through faith, so we have peace with God and we glory, we boast in our sufferings. Do you know why? Because we are a dove tucked away in the cleft of a rock. Life, Satan, whoever, throw whatever you want at me, inwardly, I have peace world throw whatever I have peace I can boast in my sufferings because inwardly I am totally at peace so final question and I'm going to close is this what if you say but I don't feel that I don't feel that way I agree with what you said but I don't feel that way I'm going to give you four things and I'm talking one sentence of peace ready number one you don't feel like you have peace Turn to God and believe in Christ. If you've never put your faith in Christ, you need to put your faith in Christ tonight. You'll never have peace with God until you put your faith in Christ. Some of you go, I've already done that, but I still don't feel like I have peace. Great, did you know that your faith journey doesn't start and stop when you get saved? It's just the beginning. It's time to push past number one and go to number two. Here's number two, turn to God and repent of sin. If you have sin in your life, you will never be at peace. If you were going down a road that you should not go down, you will not have peace. Some of you feel like I don't have peace. It's because the alarm bells are ringing right now telling you I should turn around. Repent of sin. God says, confess your sin to me. I'm faithful and just to forgive you of all sin and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. You go, okay, I've done that. I still don't feel like I have peace. Then go to number three. Turn to God and confess your sin to another believer. You need help. You're not supposed to do it alone. You're not supposed to defeat sin alone. You're too weak, so reach out to somebody and say, I need help, and get help. And number four, you go, okay, I still don't feel peace. Turn to God, consistently spend time with them. You know, when you drive your car for a while, if a check engine light comes on, you're supposed to go to the mechanic. Most of you don't, but you're supposed to go to the mechanic and get that diagnosed. If you start living a life that feels frantic and chaotic and without peace, that is the check engine light of your heart coming on saying something is not right. Go back to the drawing board. It's one of those four things. If you're not consistently spending time confessing your sin to another believer, confessing and repenting your sin, no wonder you don't feel peace. But God came to give you an exchange far better than what you're carrying around. Let me pray for us. Bye.